Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. Ken is uh, Vice President uh, for Innovation and Enrollment at uh, Houghton uh, College in upstate New York, uh, but also a well-trained uh, Bible scholar and uh, published uh, quite a few works, uh, scholarly works and more general audience works. Uh, check them out on Amazon. You can get all kinds of text from him. Ken's a regular guest here. He's a, a former uh, teacher and uh, dean of mine and, and colleague in uh, theological education. Uh, we worked for years together uh, uh, here in Indiana, and, and now he's at Houghton, and I'm so glad that he uh, continues to be on the show. Our text this week is Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice. Pass this show along to others so they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Yeah, um, well, shall we? Absolutely. Would you be willing to read the passage in whatever translation you choose, including your own, sure. if you wish? And uh, then I'll say a word of prayer. I don't know if I trust myself to to uh, free free wheel the Greek. So it's up to you. <laughs> I, I have the NRSV open here. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day which you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Father, we give you thanks for your word, which has sprung forth from at your side for our sakes and for our salvation and became incarnate in the flesh of the man, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law. And so in his name and blood and body, we now uh, cling to asking that by his spirit, we would be guided this hour to bear the word faithfully and fruitfully. We ask this for ourselves and for all those listening in, that we may all be strengthened as bearers of the word in this world. Pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So just zooming in on the text at hand, Ken, what, a, what do you notice? What's a, what kind of observations uh, capture your mind at first glance here? Well, there are a number of, uh, number of features. You know, there, there are, of course, um, spiritual, spiritual things that, that jump out, that God is able to strengthen us. And um, uh, I've, I've looked at passages lately that have reminded me uh, of this, this promise that God doesn't just expect us to do it by our own effort. You know, uh, be good moral people, good little boys and girls. It's not about trying harder or, you know, the self-help, you know, we are, we are promised a strength through the Holy Spirit, you know, to, to get us to where we need to go, to be who God wants us to be. So I, I you know, I suppose that's the first thing that, uh, that jumps out at me and God is able to do that. He's not deficient in doing that. He is able and willing to do that. So that's the first thing. Nice. I don't want to get stuck on it, but. Uh, it'd be fun to just glance at the the terminology there. The the being able, of course, is just this word, you know, dunamis, right? As a dunamai, as a verb, um, 
is able to capable of right uh powerful uh same root for for dunamis translated as power often or ability yeah um it doesn't have it doesn't have to carry a lot of weight you taught me to avoid the the word concept fallacy but <laughs> it's dynamite right yeah it's dynamite but the one that interested me was this second word the able to to strengthen you it's a strict side yeah it's a funny word it looks like it strength doesn't it yeah but interestingly i guess it has some does it have some root some connection to like maybe not to, to like is me like to stand or is there not a, is there not a sort of uh root yeah. connection that might have just been a visual the r in there probably changes it and makes it not yeah, that. i don't but know when um, i looked at some of the uses just glancing on bible hub you know there's a lot of the strengthen is, is, is it's an establishing kind of strength a fortifying kind of strength in the way it gets used in in other places in the new testament which is not much it's only used 13 times i just got bible hub out here real quick but uh yeah, i just I think it's know. interesting cuz strength is sometimes strength is sometimes the power to to move forward but in some contexts paul uses istemi a lot that's why i asked you know where he you know I, I heard someone pointed out that the the parallel from the Johannine literature of abide, right, meno, in Pauline letters is is istemi to stand, like Galatians five, you know, stand therefore in the freedom. So there's a kind of something about constancy, uh, remaining, uh, standing, being fortified. I don't know how that how that affects our reading of the passage, but I thought I'd mention it in case yeah. it, in case it would. Yeah, I mean, imagine if there's a connection, it's, it's you know, centuries in the past uh, right. in, in Greek history. Um, I'm, I'm more, uh, I, I was more likely in terms of these sorts of things to think we're all bit, one big uh, happy Indo-European family. Probably, <laughs> probably this root, uh, again, I'm, I haven't looked it up, but probably this root is related to the English word for strength. Yeah, because it's right in there. S-T-E-R. Right. That's, yeah. you've got the, and it's the, if you take just the consonants, yeah. right. It's consonants that last vowels come and go. Yeah. <laughs> but Jesus will outshine them. <laughs> well, I was thinking about like in, I don't want to get too far afield here, but the Philippians four thirteen came to mind, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And those are importantly different words there. It's your, you know, iskuo, the, 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 the usual word we get for strength that's used tons of times in the Bible. And there's also a, duna, a, a dunamis word there, en dunamuti, munti. And I thought of that only because Philippians, that language is about doing something. We're being this, giving the strength to do something. Whereas here, it might be God is able to keep us established and strength in the sense of like an anchor, maybe. According to the gospel and the proclamation and what was revealed, right? It's all kind of these sorts of, it's a more of a stabilizing language. I don't want to read too much into the word. I'm just more thinking of the context in the sentence. The The strengthening is not to do a thing, but to remain stable in a thing. But maybe I'm reading too much in. So tell me if I'm out to lunch. Well, we're, we're about an hour from lunch. Um <laughs> I did. I do see. In, I do see uh, in Luke nine fifty one, uh, where it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the oh same, heavens. The same. Are you word. serious? I didn't even catch that. Oh my heavens! You're right. Um. So he he girded himself. You know he he was uh, determined. He you know he he bucked up little camper. Hmm. Um, but anyway, there's a little bit of a teeth gritting or a keep calm and carry on. There's a, the, the, which would, the, yeah. it's a more, and a little bit of a, maybe an implicit uh, facing of persecution or at least bearing with sufferings of the world. Yeah. Right. You know, to, to remain strong in the midst of what comes at you. Yeah. Interestingly, this know. word is used in Romans one 11 as well. Uh, he wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen Strength. Wow. Which if this, if this was a part of the original text of Romans, then that would form a bit of a inclusio, inclusio right? Yeah. yeah. Little bookend. Yeah. 
But Paul does use it elsewhere. You know, it's I've, I see two references for Thessalonians, two and second. Yeah, James, some Peter, Revelation. So it's it's frequent yeah. enough that. Yeah, that's cool. I I love doing live word studies on the air, right? <laughs> yeah, you heard it here live. <laughs> well, I usually, you know, like I'm usually not gonna do all of my word study like in front of people while uh you know, preaching a sermon, although it often is behind a key moment in a sermon is rooted in a, in a word study. I usually don't, you know, air my dirty laundry of actually walking through it. So that was fun to actually do, especially from the man who taught me how to do word study, Greek word studies at least. I mean, with, with, uh, you know, either Bible hub or blue letter Bible, you really can eyeball a word study like we just did in the last real fast five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. None of that dear listener, that was, none of that was uh, prepped before we did that right now. It's all about, you go to blue Le- Bible hub and you go, uh, there's the little lowercase E in brackets, the letter E in lowercase next to each word. If you're using the interlinary, so you go to Bible hub and the interlinary and, and then you click on that little E and boom, you get every usage of that word in the scriptures. And it's just, Oh yeah. Like you said, you can eyeball it cause it has, it has four translations of the sentence where the word comes in and you just, like you said, you just do a quick eyeball and you get a sense of things. Yeah, no, and you don't even have to know the Greek to do that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can, because it's, it's easier all right than there. ever. Yeah, I know. Oh my heavens. All it those, took so long in college. In books that I know. <laughs> we had to buy. Well, I mean, I, I learned English Bible word study from Lennox in college and yeah, it took forever at the library. And then, then I took Greek with you and, learned how to do my Greek word studies and learned some really great, some of the philosophy of, of word studying from you. Once you learn the language, it was, it was easier, study. but what's that? The Tao to word study. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. What else is, uh, what else is grabbing you here? What, what's sort of interesting and what are some patterns or terms or well, uh, themes that grab you? Well, I thought my gospel is interesting. Yeah. You know, are there other people preaching other gospels? Certainly there were, because Paul talks about them in Galatians. He says, they're not another gospel. They're fake. They're false. Yeah. Uh, they're fake news, you know. <laughs> yeah. It makes me wonder, like, does he ever use this phrase again? My gospel. Not sure. I don't think so. But you're right. I, it made me think of, it definitely made me think of Galatians. Oh, and, earlier in Romans, uh, according to my gospel, Romans 2.16. Okay. So Romans has that phrase. You're making an argument for the uh, Timothy as well has it. The Go originality. Ahead. Well, I, I, that's not where I was intending, but no, it, no, at no, least not, a, not of course. These are some evidence that might support might support that claim. Uh, we'll come back to that in the the middle section. Just that's not for you. That was for the listeners to say. We're foreshadowing. Uh, a particular interesting textual uh, problem with this text that we didn't want to have that uh, overdetermine our zoom in. We'll make that part of the zoom out in a uh, segment two, but yeah, my gospel, that, that direct uh, implication that there is a, a competing one. And it makes you wonder if, I mean, we don't want to build a mountain out of a molehill here, but if this is even relevant to what he's saying, you know, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, as if to imply there are other gospels out there that aren't claiming a God that's going to strengthen you. Perhaps there's a sort of subtle dig at a gospel that says, well, Christ did the first half and now it's, now it's your turn. <laughs> and maybe a sort of subtle dig of saying, according to my gospel, he's going to, he's going to keep you. He's going to, he's going to sustain you. Um, or, you just have to believe. I don't know. Or another way to look at that is, I mean, Romans is a, um, I think in Romans, Paul is anticipating that people have been bad-mouthing him. I don't know whether you've ever yes. you know, known I, that, that there are people, like, if you're a pastor listening to this, you've never experienced anyone in your church talking about <laughs> over lunch after the sermon. But you know, Paul says in 3, um, 3.8 that there are some people who slander him by saying, hey, let's do evil, that good may come. You know, let's, yeah. you know, let's sin more that grace may come. And Paul says, according to my gospel, God strengthens you to where you actually can live the life he wants you to live. So it may be uh, a little bit of a self-defense. Um, right. Okay. I hear that. Than a, uh, a, a jab. 
Um, I hear that. I mean, that's just a thought. Yeah, that makes sense. And that would fit a little more Romans versus, say, Galatians, where it would have maybe more of the jab vibe. Because there he knew he had competitors. It was it was out in the open. It was an open conflict. Whereas Romans, it's a little more subterranean. It's more – it's by way of rumor. He doesn't know these people. He hasn't been to Rome yet, right? So there's a little more of a – it's woven into a defense rather than a kind of full frontal – open attack the way Galatians plays out, right? I mean, according to, I mean, according to my gospel, God strengthens us, you know, to do the good, you know, he wants us to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. Just a possibility. And then there's this beautiful passage that, that again, you know, fits the language of Romans, although really fits like, uh, you know, Ephesians, right? Ephesians. Very Ephesian-y. Yeah. Apocalypsis. Mysterium, right? The yeah. the revelation, the unveiling of the mystery that was kept secret in the times of the ages past, right? This kind of yeah. this old mystery that was held up that's now been unveiled. And that's that's also Ephesiany. Um, yeah. Oh, the whole uh, phrase, the whole image, yeah. Um in fact, that was another thing that struck me. Um it was kept secret. And um I think there's a tendency for us to assume that the New Testament is the obvious end of the Old Testament story. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like, well, of course, you know. Um, right. But, but I think if we were there in the first mm-hmm. century, the New Testament is an unexpected ending to the story. You don't expect, I mean, we, well, what about Isaiah 53? Of course, the, the, the Messiah right. is going to suffer. You know, That's the three. trouble is we're... We don't know what else was being said, or at least that's not in our minds. We're so shaped by the New Testament that their polemics where they say, this was the plan all along, see? And we miss, we miss that actually there's a bunch of people saying this isn't obvious. <laughs> that's my why they're doth protest too much, right? <laughs> my old Thompson chain reference, King James version Bible that has the nice chart of all the fulfilled prophecies in Jesus. Right. Well, of course, anybody with a brain would have known. Right. Right. Well, we don't realize that, that um, from their perspective, this is, this is like, you know, they turned the chapter to the new Testament and it's like, well, this is not at all, you know, what I was anticipating. Uh, it's a it's a, a mystery, especially the Gentiles. The inclusion of the Gentiles—that specific is, is, one is that's like core to quote my gospel, right from Paul. Yeah. That's a, a heart. Twist. What a twist! And so, of course, he's got all these wonderful passages from Isaiah and Deuteronomy and elsewhere that talk about the nations, which is the same word in Greek as Gentiles, right? Yeah. The, the the goy, the goyim. Then, but he's having to do some work, right? He he's he's doing some. He's, he's, he's engaging in some pretty clever uh, – he, he's a clever rabbi in this whole book. So the, the idea that this is just uh, – in some ways, the language of the revelation of a mystery that was kept secret for ages is uh, actually kind of a helpful admission for how to interpret Paul as not simply saying, if you'd have just been paying attention, it'd be obvious. I mean, his, his biography is helpful here where – you know, he yeah. was a good student of the word and he, he was, he was wrong, but in a certain sense, justified, he, he had a justified false belief, right? Instead of a justified true belief, he had a justified false belief that these Christians were a evil sect that needs to be wiped out. And so for him, he had to go back to the drawing board and rethink it all. So it's maybe helpful for him. I mean, the, the, the parallel for the 12 would be the event of resurrection and how that kind of makes them rethink yeah. the whole story and interpret the crucifixion accordingly. But, you know, that's at the beginning, whereas for him, it's a, it comes later for him. He's much older man, already well-trained and, and they learned from Jesus how to, how to read the Bible. So he kind of set them up. So I'm not saying it wasn't a surprise for them, but it was a different kind of experience. Whereas Paul's experience is almost like this perfect map out of someone who had every reason yep. to know that this is not obvious. It actually requires the inspiration of the spirit, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, through which you can then see the pattern. And for people who, people who know how I, uh, how I, and again, this is just my way of interpreting Paul's pilgrimage. You know, when I look at Peter and Paul at Antioch in Galatians 2, hmm. Peter strikes me as the kind of person who 
had never really given it the the good old Pharisee try. Um, <laughs> right. So, yes. Oh, totally. <laughs> you know, for for him, it's kind of like, well, I just need to try harder. And Paul's like, I was perfect. Yeah. I did everything. I did it all. I was the perfect Pharisee. Uh, uh, Philippians three six, according to righteousness in the law, I was blameless. And so when when Jesus says, "Nope, you're wrong," Paul's like, "It has to be something completely different." Yeah. It, it, oh, that's it, good. It can't, it can't at all be me uh, doing the law because I was doing the law. It must be Jesus. It must be justification by faith. So that I, I agree that it was. It, you know, he just like completely mind blown and he takes him three years at seminary to figure, you know, figure it all out. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Peter and the, the 12 are, you know, Jesus is their rabbi, maybe not their first rabbi, but definitely the one they were dedicated to for years. And so he kind of was teaching them, well, here's how to, here's how to follow the law. It's not, it's not like the Pharisees. It's this other way which then makes it seem kind of like possible. Oh, this is like a different way to do it, right? <laughs> oh, that's that's a really good insight. That's great. Let me ask about one more term, if you'd be willing, this uh, this phrase, the prophetic scriptures. That's a, that's a weird one. I'm not, I'm used to the prophets. I'm used to according to the scriptures. Yeah. Although here it's not according to the scriptures. It's It's been made manifest now through the scriptures that that's just strange to me. I, I don't. It is strange, and and my my first thought is because I think I think your first thought is he's talking about the Old Testament. But um, in Ephesians, my interpretation of Ephesians, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, is that prophets mm. there's not talking about Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets. Yeah, and there's indications of that in Acts and other places that that there were prophets running around. That was part of First Corinthians makes references to. So the, ah, okay. But we don't, I mean, we don't know of any prophetic writings other than the New Testament. That's why it's tricky is that it's yeah. written, prophetic course, writings. If this, if this is a, a doxology that's been yeah. spliced into Romans, then the whole New Testament would have been possibly written. Seen as prophetic. Yeah. But, um, is it at all possible if this is the prophetic writings as a, either the, prophets in particular or the whole hebrew bible as a prophetic text which is clearly how paul tends to read it if it could be taken that way just in the the grammar and syntax of this sentence could it be that the having been made now through the scriptures could that be taken as well I mean, if you read Romans, he's kind of saying the, the 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 plan was there in the scriptures. You just need the key to see yeah. it. So, sure. so it, uh, could be, it could be saying that we didn't have the decoder ring until now. But yeah. In other words, the prophetic scriptures, we didn't understand them as prophetic scriptures. Does that work syntactically? Like d does the syntax of through dia – with a genitive so. plural, like permit that because through is pretty loose, right? I mean, that can mean just about anything, yeah. right? <laughs> so having having been manifested, having been uh, made visible through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God, um, leading to obedience of faith. It's the even the reference to God's eternality seems to be part of the the implicit argument here that God, who's eternal, who's of the ages. That even though it was hidden from back in the ages, that didn't mean it wasn't the plan. It was just hidden. Right. And where was it hidden? Well, maybe it was hidden in the dough of the scriptures. And it's just now sort of popped open. You know, the eyes have been opened, as it were. And again, lots of echoes, I think, of Ephesians, having been known in relationship to the Gentiles. So, so this, this idea that the inclusion of the Gentiles is the mystery that was not known but is now revealed and is apparent through the prophetic writings. Yeah. No, I see that, that, well, that these Ephesians connections will not be irrelevant to what we come back to after the break. So let's take a quick break and, and then zoom out a bit. And we're back. Welcome back to fresh text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and we are looking at, uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 
27. Now, I had a handful of questions I really wanted to attend to here as we zoom out to larger questions of interpretation. Actually, I had three, but we can spend as long or as little on any or all of them as you wish. And if you have agenda items, we'll address those too. But the the first is this one we've already been telegraphing, which is that there's a textual problem here. Most translations would have a little note, little footnote that says, or brackets, you know, some of the ancient manuscripts don't have uh, 25 through 27. So anything you want to comment about that? We, we can talk about general things about how to preach on, on textual issues, but just specifically on this passage, uh, what, what's, what's going on here textually? Well, the, what's your assessment? The, um, the, the doxology is found in three different places in the manuscripts. It's found at the uh, end of chapter, chapter 15. It's found at the end of chapter 14 in, I think it's Marcion. I can't remember. So the, the, the doxology has jumped around which uh, has suggested that and that's verse 27 uh, or the whole thing, the whole thing, 25, the to whole 25. thing, 25. To, wow. Okay. So Marcion, who is of course, uh, we now call him a heretic. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I'd be very interested to see whether he's in heaven or not. Um, but um, Marcion was a Gnostic who lived about the year 150, who apparently had a version of Romans without chapters 15 and 16. And, that particular version of Romans ap- appears in some manuscripts. Okay. Um, there, there's one manuscript, P46 or something like that, which is an old, it's an old manuscript that has it at the end of chapter 15, I think it is. Hmm. Um, I can look this up if you want. But, no, that's um, fine enough. Yeah. But it's, it's a bit of an odd bird, but it's a very early odd bird. And of course, spoiler alert, Scholars have off and on debated whether Romans 16 was sent to Rome or whether it was sent to Ephesus. Because if you read Romans 16, Paul knows an awful lot of people. And they're people who, as far as Acts is concerned, we last, or actually Paul's writings, we last knew they were at Ephesus. Um, and in huh. fact, one of the people is the first convert in Asia, which is where Ephesus is. And my guess, you know, scholarship has is trendy. It goes in fits and starts. Sure, right, sure. Right now, scholars tend to view Romans 16 as as sent to Rome. Nobody doubts that Paul wrote Romans 16, but the debate is whether it, was it used to be of, a, attached to a different letter at some point or something. Or whether it was a, a, a letter of commendation a, that went with Phoebe. Yeah. And because it was written from Corinth at the same time that it's associated with Romans. Uh, but, ah. that but that he didn't send it to Rome. Again, that's fascinating that, you know, in 1970, that might've been 50%. Now it's it's a minority. Um, Interesting. Okay. But basically the doxology is in multiple places. Um, By the way, it was P46. P46. Yeah. I went and checked over at the end of 15. Yeah. um, Okay. So that reads to all kinds of questions. You know, if, is this original and is it important? Um, you know, we, we started off with the assumption that a person might preach this text. And that's always an interesting question when you're, well, when you're having these discussions. The woman caught in adultery in John. Should you mm-hmm. preach from that text if it wasn't in the original text of, of John? Sure, it just fits better in Luke. <laughs> and, <laughs> and actually, and, it's uh, in Luke at one, uh, in some manuscripts. <laughs> and I've, I've actually, uh, I've made the argument, again, you know, nobody has to agree with me. I've made the argument that even if there were sources, like, okay, take the book of Revelation. What if the book of Revelation kind of snowballed over yeah. the course of a decade? I assume that the inspired inerrant text is the canonical text. Not to say that stages along the way weren't inspired too, or maybe weren't even, that may, may have been inerrant too, but that the way it ends up in the Bible is the way God wants us to primarily engage it. Where, where it then gets tricky is with what is the final form of the text or what is the sure. canonical form of the text? Does it include the woman caught in adultery? Does it include the ending of Mark? Or, you know, if it, is there like a five second rule, you know, or a <laughs> 50 year rule, you know, if, if, if it hasn't, if it hasn't been added in the first 50 years of the text, sure. the canonical form. Well, this, it goes to show that that's not a question that can be answered by way of a single 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 use rule right it's not going to work that way because you know the bulk of the canon is pretty clear 
and it's these edge cases. And I, I tend to be a exception proves the rule kind of guy where I'm like, yeah, okay. So there's some fuzzy boundaries here and there in some of these texts and even some of the texts that were uh, included in the canon versus not, you know, but the fourfold gospel and the Pauline letters, I mean, these are, these are up and running as the canonical heart of the new Testament pretty dang early, you know? And interestingly, we're actually quite fine with this phenomenon, not maybe the textual error part, but the, the concentric circles of inclusion in the old Testament, because it stretches over such a long time that you basically have a Bible within a Bible within a Bible, right? I mean, like when the, when the prophets are running around talking about the law, they're talking about a book that's already written and can canonical. So there's already a canon within a canon within the canon. And I wonder if that same kind of mindset is harder to have with the new Testament because it's written over such a brief period that we're tempted to want to have this kind of original manuscripts, they put pen to paper and inspiration's done. The Holy Spirit's like, all right, done with that. Moving on to the next one, right? Whereas the notion of the Spirit guiding a, a process of composition and of preservation and of inclusion in a canon is just kind of like, I mean, it seems implausible to not have that kind of a mind. Let me not say it's implausible. It's a little more natural to think of those, that process when you're thinking over the course of a thousand years you know, in the Hebrew Bible versus a hundred years. It's a little, it's a little touchier, you know, yeah. especially because there's so much, there was so much debate and so many people getting called heretics that the polemics make us think that you got to be kind of this kind of this all or nothing game of boundary setting. That's just not how history works, you know, but, but you know, Paul, <laughs> it's messier than that. Paul, uh, I mean, let me just spin out a scenario. Paul could have, so usually a, an author kept a copy with them. You know, mm. it might be a shipwreck. It might be lost. So you, you both send a copy and you keep a copy is my yep. sense of how, how it was done. So let's say Paul sends a copy of Romans to Rome that only has 1 to 15 with a doxology. And then he sends a one chapter uh, to Ephesus. And then he keeps with him a 16 chapter version with the doxology at the, at the very it's written end. at the same time. Yeah, you know, and so you have you have potentially three different versions of Romans in play, from all of which were beginning. from the mouth of Paul. Yeah, yeah. that's or not implausible. You, or yeah. you have Paul, you know, uh, writes Ephesians five six years later, and uh, he's there at Rome, you know, about to be beheaded or whatever, and he creates now the definitive Romans, you know, with a <laughs> Ephesians like doxology. At the end. again, I'm not saying that happened. But well, There's these so are these are not possibilities. Yeah, you're not pitching these as hypotheses as much as thought experiments to yeah. to register that textual variance could in fact be uh, that that the notion of an original manuscript and a textual variant actually could be simultaneous. It's messy. Yeah, it's not a uh, textual variants aren't just things that went wrong after in the transmission. Yeah, what it could be a part of the production of the text. Paul could write yeah. marginal notes. You know, I don't think this happened, but but um, the the passage on women being silent in the churches is in two different places in the manuscripts. You know, that could have easily arisen as a marginal note, yeah, whether by Paul or somebody else, and it gets copied into two different places as the manuscript tradition goes forward. But the fun thing is, for all the the difficulties of us getting in the heads of this of that world and the way that letter writing operated with a small percentage of, of literate people, there is a kind of, even just between, you know, when you and I were young and today, how much less a text is fixed from even in the nineties, right? When you and I first met, when you think in the nineties, the internet was just getting started. Whereas like now when I comment on you know, you put a post on Facebook and I do a little reply and then someone replies to me, I can go back and edit my, uh, my reply so that their criticism of me doesn't even make sense anymore yeah. because I cleaned up the thing. You know, it's the polite thing to do is put, Hey, I, I edited it. Good point. And then you a year later could then publish or post on a blog, a long form of what you did in your first post. Now, because we tend to think of this as this holy book or even, to, you know, so it's like Paul is living in a world where he's just writing letters. He, I don't know if he's thinking of himself as writing scripture. There may be parts of the New Testament where they're thinking that way, but I, I don't 
I, there's no reason to think that Paul thought that way about there's his letter. First Corinthians seven. Now, now I write, not the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like as if to say, sometimes I'm being a prophet speaking for Guess God. What, Most Paul, of the time, you're actually writing scripture. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so he's kind of before it's the the notion of a fixed text as a holy holy object, which then gets complicated and almost more fixed when you move into the time of the printing press and the notion of a published work. So we've had like 500 years of this kind of the fixed text. And if you make a distinction, oh, it's first and second edition there, you want to mark that it's different. Whereas now these last 20, 30 years, we've been moving into a time where texts have become less fixed and that fluidity might help us, a modern mind grasp the, I mean, how often do I write an email where I cut and paste the whole body and it's literally, it would be the introduction and conclusion is what I would change, right? It would yeah. be like, if I were to write a, I mean, I've done it for fresh text, right? If I'm, you know, I mean, I just did it. I, I mean, I'll just get behind the curtain. <laughs> I, I just sent a text. You'll like to know this to when we're recording this to Amy Peeler, whose episode will be two weeks before this one drops. But I just sent that text same week as I was, booking this with you to ask if she'd like to be on the show. Well, what she doesn't know, of course, is that I cut and copied and pasted that from a text to Eric Barreto a couple months before. But I like, obviously the open, it was literally the opening lines and the closing lines that were the kind of personal things to my friend, Amy, and cleaned out the reference to yeah. thanks for having us over this summer to Eric. Cause that stuff that yeah. wouldn't apply to Amy's. We didn't go to her house this summer. We went to Eric's house. We were in Jersey. Right. So anyway, sorry to use that example, but it seems it makes almost perfect sense that that it's not it's not special pleading to say that these textual variants may be very ancient, even during the lifetime of Paul. Um, there's there's actually really good manuscript evidence for this placement. Um, so you know, in in textual criticism, you know the the oldies but a goodie. You know, our Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, both of them have this doxology here. Um, so at the end, if okay. you ask, and the top manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts actually have this doxology uh, here in this particular spot at the end of 16. Do any not have it at all, or is it usually just in a different place? That's a good that point. I could not tell. I have one where it says omit 25 to 27 omit FG 629 and here manuscript H-I-E-R. Does that just mean it's completely omitted? What did you say again? F and G? FG 629 and here, H-I-E-R. Those don't seem to have the doxology at all. Just missing completely. Okay. Because the one question is whether – okay. Oh, that would be Jerome. Duh, H. Okay. Interesting. Which would probably be a Roman – which would probably be an Italian manuscript tradition. So that's an interesting piece of evidence that Jerome doesn't have it. So then we have to turn to internal evidence. Does Are there some terminology and phrasing here that suggest a different hand or at least a different time? And the Ephesian connection then just opens that whole can of worms of, of Pauline yeah. authorship of Ephesians. But even it's still, even if, even if it's Paul, it's different. It's a different time. If it's Paul, he's writing different. He's changed his way of reading and thinking and writing. Or he's a co-author and it's under Paul's name, but you know. Timothy Silas, one of these guys is doing the legwork and he's just, he's just the first editor on the, you know, like, <laughs> like whenever I've been a, whenever I've been a co-editor on a book, you know, when I'm the junior scholar, I do the work. <laughs> and when someone else is a junior scholar, they do the work. <laughs> um, but my name's still on it. <laughs> just, yeah, so, so, you know, if, if, if you go with uh, Paul as author of Ephesians, then there's nothing about this that would be particularly unpauline. I don't, I don't think. And we already pointed out that there's a number of phrases here that that do appear earlier in yeah. the book of Romans. So it's yeah. not com- – I, I don't think internal evidence is conclusive one way or the other. I don't know how you would feel on that. but Well, I, I would say it's, it's a different style than the rest of Romans. Yeah. Uh, but then again, a doxology is always a little – Right. There's a formalism to it that could yeah. reflect something different. So Very no, I would, I would agree periodic. that it's different. Yeah. 
but you could also say the whole book of uh, book uh, whole of chapter sixteen is a different style, sure, right? Yeah. But it's also maybe just a different genre because he's greeting people rather than making an argument, and that's just different. Yeah. Well, that was fun. I hope our listeners all enjoyed us geeking out over uh, uh, textual variants. Uh, <laughs> last la- last thing before we. By the way, uh, I have no wrap- problem preaching it one way or another. Oh no, no brainer to me, man. It's part of the canonical text and have at it. Um, actually, this is one of the places where the lectionary is an interesting thing because when the lectionary suggests texts, it's often because of thematic connections to other texts that are also assigned for that week. And I've kept that at bay uh, on purpose so that we don't kind of have the whole lectionary business over-determining our conversation. But I thought I'd say a little about that right now. So this is for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And the first reading is Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. Uh-huh. Right? I will be his father and he'll be my son. Yep. And then uh, the Magnificat from Luke chapter 1, my Great. soul magnifies the Lord. Because obviously it's it's the last Sunday before Christmas, which I'm sure everyone was like, hey, you know, the last Sunday before Christmas, I really want to think about textual variants. <laughs> right. um, Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Also you know, a Davidic song. Yeah. Yes. I found my servant David with my holy oil. I've anointed him. Yep. All that. And then uh, Romans 16. Then with that in mind, you can kind of see the genius of this as an epistle text. Because, of course, the epistles don't do don't talk about Christmas a lot. It's all very sort of indirect. But here is a very fitting, right? Now to God. Yeah. It's the revelation story. of a mystery that's been secret, yeah. hidden in the prophetic writings. It's almost like the key. Let me tell you a mystery. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, this could be like a, just a gangbusters, but out of left field Christmas text. Because, I mean, it's the the glory of it links it up with the angels celebrating the, the glory in excelsis. Um, and the the notion of something hidden that's now being revealed i mean even our, a lot of our christmas our 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 secular christmas practices are built around the notion of something hidden and planned for a long time and we're listen, we're listening to this during advent yeah yeah this will drop during advent yeah so there's some sort of fun connections you know so you all are getting ready to preach this sunday on the fourth sunday of advent correct yeah our listeners if they if they i mean a lot of them don't end up preaching the texts right in the schedule. You know, we don't have a lot of lectionary preachers listening in, but, and even those who would could end up preaching on a different text, but this could be some interesting background, you know, some, uh, some phrasing, some, some thoughts that could be imported into that. But I, you know, per our custom on fresh text, I try to keep the, the preaching questions at bay for a while so that it can just stand alone as, as an exegesis of the passage. But well, before we uh, before we break, uh, is there any other things you wanted to point out, just exegetically or hermeneutically? Um, I didn't want, in case you were holding on to something, I didn't want to cut you off before we turn to sermon starters. Well, we haven't mentioned he's the only wise God. There are mm. some some gods out there that actually can't talk, but um, we have the only wise God, to whom be the glory forever. I didn't think of that being connected to the not being able to speak. But I think of those Psalms and Isaiah too, the, the, you know, they have ears, but they cannot hear mouth, but they cannot speak. Is that some of what's being hinted at with the only wise God, the kind of anti-idolatry? It's where my mind went. I mean, it's not, it's not that Paul believes that there are, man, there are some other gods out there, but they're really dumb. I mean, that's not, (laughs) he's, he, he doesn't believe they can even speak, you know? You know, Romans Romans one may allude to the Book of Wisdom, which you know talks about really just makes fun of people who would make a god out of wood, you know. Huh. Uh, and of course, that go- goes back to Isaiah forty five too. And so uh, when and I think fits only, the fits the, the diaspora experience, god, what would that mean? The only wise God, hmm. uh, because none of the other gods even. Although he does, he, I, you know, I think Paul does sometimes indicate that he he views those other gods as demonic there are other supernatural forces yeah he's not a sort of modern monotheist 
So, right, so he a... could he could say, well, yeah, there are other so-called gods, you know, First Corinthians eight, but they're not wise. Ooh, but um, that's a great, and that that adds some punch to the the doxology, which for modern monotheists tends to be the com- the competition for most modern monotheists is myself. I'm going to give glory to me or am I going to give it to God? Whereas, you know, in this kind of pagan diaspora context, the question is, are you going to glorify these other gods, these foolish gods or the one wise God? Yeah. There's, um, there's a preaching. I hear a sermon coming on. Yeah. Well, perhaps let's take a break and come back and explore some sermon starters then. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Ken Shank, regular on the show. Glad to have him here uh, for this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent text. We're this uh, year, which is year B in the lectionary, we're kind of shifting to doing epistle texts now for us for a while. Um, this was the epistle text uh, for the week, Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Let's explore some sermon starters. What What might suggestions might you make? to preachers or teachers or where might you go with it? Again, you could do just this text or maybe make connections to Christmas, to Advent, to the Magnificat, to the, the Old Testament. You can make any connections you want. What, what would be some possibilities that come to your mind? I might just complete my thought before a break. You know, there are a, a lot of um, unwise gods out there, so to speak. If we, if we take God in the metaphorical uh. sense, things that people treat um, as gods, uh, I could see a topical sermon, you know, where you talked about the, the not so wise guys, you know, or the not so wise gods. Um, we serve the only wise God. There are people who trust in materialism. There are people, uh, who trust in their own ability to, to map out the future, you know, but we serve the only wise God anyway. So just to complete, complete the thought if some, if someone wanted to completely just hone in on that phrase, run with that wise God. There's a a thought. Yeah. I think you could develop that with reference to the, the hiddenness of the mystery as well. I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the language of wisdom has a tendency to be linked with time, with timing. So when we use it of, of fellow human beings, right, you might, someone might be knowledgeable, but what separates wise from mere knowledgeable would be not just knowing what to say, but kind of when to say it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I have a little bit of knowledge. My reputation as wise is, is still has a long ways to go because I don't always say the stuff that I know at the right time, right? Which thinks back to verse uh, 25, 26, right? There's this mystery that was hidden and that's now been revealed. And again, this is how I tend to think and and even preach sometimes is you can kind of see two extremes of a foolish, a foolish God, a foolish God who reveals it all at once up front (laughs) and just overwhelms you, you know, um, that would be foolhardy or the, the foolish or even the, the, the mute God who never reveals anything. It's all just secrets that will never be revealed. Um, or one notch back from that, a kind of Gnostic God who only reveals it to a kind of inner circle. So the wisdom of God, according to Paul here, is this kind of this perfect uh, mean between extremes, between a God that, uh, that unveils all of it all too soon, you know, before the time was ripe, which does link with Galatians 4, which would be my favorite kind of Christmas passage in in Paul, right? Born of a woman, born under the law in the fullness of time, right? Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. That's a sort of beautiful kind of, you know, the, the rudiments of Trinity incarnation Christmas are all kind of there again as rudiments. I don't think they're in, I don't think those dogmas are in Paul's head, but those doctrines that come to the foreground in the Christmas season, uh, there's a kind of, there's a kind of timing. There's a perfect timing in God's revelation, both, but there and then as we celebrate Christmas, but also now in our own lives. And you're, you're not glorifying a wise God if you're expecting him to reveal, to never reveal or to reveal immediately, right? God is going to reveal his plan right at the right time. I think there's something there. 
different different conceptions of God's knowledge. Um, you know, I tend to be pretty scholastic and predictable. You know, God knows everything at all times. But you think of uh, from you know from a human standpoint, how how I mean, I'm sure it's not boring for God. But you know, I know <laughs> that I'm going to say this a thousand years from now, and I've known from time eternity past that I was going to say, you know, what's something in the Bible. You know, go go to Thessalonica, Paul. I know I'm going to say that, you know, so many thousand years from now, and yet God waits patiently until huh. the right moment, you know, to say, go to Thessalonica, don't, you know, don't go down to Mysia, Paul. That's kind of a awesome thought to me, but um, in terms yeah, of... Yeah, well, patience and wisdom are linked, aren't they, in that regard? Yeah, either he knows it's all mapped out and it's just a matter of the moment when it comes, uh, which is maybe just like a blink of an eye for him. Uh, and or we could think, of course, the language of wisdom, again, when you say knowledge, omniscience, facts, the idea that God could know all facts of all times is I, I think I can grasp the concept. I, I, I can't grasp it uh, existentially for me. I don't know what that would be like. It would I completely mean, change. Emotions. God knows yeah. he's going to get angry. On Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. And, but, you know, wisdom implies a little bit more of a, you know, we, we, wisdom is something we attribute to, uh, especially to people of influence who are dealing with the complexities of other wills. I mean, why is it, why is it wise to wait in that meeting to say the thing that you already knew? Or to wait uh, until two meetings from now to say it. Yeah. I mean, I've often well, it's be- felt that way about It's because there's, o- there's other wills. It's because there's other wills at work that have a measure of freedom, right? And so there's a right time for hearing and responding. And it seems to me that to call God wise is to already gesture at uh, at least a measure of freedom that God grants to us, that the fullness of time may not have been you know, uh, it may have been appointed by way of foreknowledge, but by way of foreknowledge, not by simply, a you know, divine fiat. There may have been a kind of an awareness of the way that human freedom was playing out. Yeah. I feel like you that, know. that, that correspond, that doesn't directly contradict the, the image of God being presented here. I can do A or B and God knows that I can do A or B and he knows that I'm going to do B. Uh. <laughs> Sure, which sure to me sounds like he's telling he's making you do B, but that's because it's hard for me to grasp what it's what an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent God really is. Yeah, well, I so, mean, you just you just excited me. I'd love to talk about God in a sermon. It's we don't do that very often. That's one of the great things about a doxology is it invites Psalms and and doxologies in the New Testament invite some direct God talk. What kind of God is it that we serve? What kind of God is it who wisely orchestrated events to result at this particular time and place? And how, what does it look like to glorify that God now? You know, The structure to me is fairly common in Paul that God is the tel- God the Father is the telos, the mm-hmm. ultimate recipient of glory. And Jesus is the instrument or the authenticator or the legitimizer of the uh, pathway or of the yeah, um, through. Yeah. As in Ephesians, I think Paul is talking here of, of a, a very unique secret that wasn't disclosed. N- namely this, uh, again, the, the, perhaps the mystery of, of the inclusion of the Gentiles but I do think it applies to to our lives too. That God doesn't tell us everything, and that and I I'm glad He doesn't. You know, if I'm going to have <laughs> a car accident, I don't want Him to tell me. I just you know I would that would be horrible to to know, you know that this afternoon I'm going to have a car accident. You know, I, I wouldn't want Him to tell me. He keeps some things hidden from us, um, and I'm glad He does myself. But uh, His timing is 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 good, and then it's disclosed. Yeah, and that sure does require a lot of faith, though, which comes back to the, you know, central theme of Paul's preaching of 
Yeah, and I guess that would be the the last question I would want to explore with you today is is what would be the the kind of response? And sometimes this is a great way to write sermons instead of like it's very tempting to kind of go ex Jesus shaping a sermon around a central theme and then oh and now I got to think about what kind of response am I? Sometimes what's nice is to exegete and then to kind of work backwards from there. You know, it's kind of like you have the beginning and the end of a story. Uh, the end is kind of, what kind of response do I want to invite from those who hear what I have to say this week or, you know, in whatever context? And there's a whole lot of different ways to get there sermon-wise that are more, that are as much about the personality of the preacher as anything else. What kind of response do you think a text like this is, is sort of inviting from us? Two in it's not a direct instruction, so it's a little tricky. It's not as obvious. Sometimes it's obvious, right? Two, two in particular jump out at me. Okay. Um, one is we started, we talked about at the very beginning, this, this God who is able to strengthen, uh, strengthen us no matter what we're facing. And then later on it says uh, to bring about the obedience of faith. Mm. Um, so uh, obviously there is an expectation here that we – uh, who hear the scripture will obey in accordance with our faith, which, by the way, shows that faith is is not just a cognitive thing, right? Um, but, but faith implies a certain course of action. Um, or James, you know, faith without works is dead. But so there is an obedience of faith. I think that expression is also in Romans one, by the way. Another, uh, yes, connection. it is one five, I think. So, um, and then God is 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 going to strengthen us uh, to be able to do that. Um, again, at the beginning, I was thinking of first Corinthians 10, 13, you know, um, God, uh, there's no testing or no temptation, uh, that you can't bear because God mm. will make a way, uh, that you can bear it. He will strengthen you. So those were the two that immediately jumped out at me in terms of, of how I can apply these principles. Yeah. It, it occurs to me, there's kind of a beautiful sandwich here between the power and wisdom of God, you see, you know, the obedience of our faith, right? That's kind of, um, God wisely orchestrates us to know what we need to know when we need to know it and remain, keeps hidden what needs to be kept hidden. And he offers us sufficient strength. Again, it's got that same mean between extremes, you know, that because the first Corinthians connection implies a kind of he won't give you more than you can handle. It sort of implies just enough, right? Like it will be right. hard, right? Like you're going to be just about ready to give up. Yes, right? right on the line, which then kind of fits a kind of you know the obedience of faith. So there's the obedience. Um, oh, it's just too good. That phrase, obedience of faith, is just so cool. I mean, to think of how it's almost perfect kind of Christmas Advent and Christmas fodder, you know, cause it's, it's on the one hand, we're just being invited to believe and celebrate in this wonderful mystery. God does all the work. There's no, we don't contribute anything to Christmas. You know, it's just there. It's this wonderful gift, you know, and yet it invites from us uh, a new way of living. And I mean, maybe this is too cheesy, but it's just so perfect. You think of like, you know, if you give a kid a bike for Christmas, in a sense, the responsibility of the kid is to just believe that it really is a gift and receive it. There's no like requirement. This is exactly what you have to do. But obviously, you're going to get on the bike and ride it, right? Like that's the obedience of faith. That's the active reception and response to the wisdom and the power of God. Yeah. So I feel like there's maybe something there to play with, uh, playing with that obedience of faith image. It's just such a perfect combination of the two of, sides that we tend to play off each other. Reminds me of John Walton's, um, and again, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not completely convinced, interpretation of the Sabbath in Genesis 1, that the Sabbath is not when God completely stops working. It's when everything is now set up for him to uh, behave normally toward uh, the creation. The house is built. Now he's going to live in it. Hmm. Uh, well, what corresponds to that is the simple insight that, that I first learned from Carl Barr, though he might have got it from somebody else, probably did, but that uh, the first full day of the human was the Sabbath. So yeah. even though the humans yeah. created on the sixth day, the seventh day is the, f the first full day. So for God, 
the Sabbath comes at the end of the week, but for us, it's at the beginning as it were, you know, and that's a kind of fun twist. Well, that's cool. Well, thank you so much for giving time, Ken, and exploring some sermon ideas and and digging into this text. I always learn so much from you when we, when we do this, I just, it's such a blast. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks also to, to Todd and Eric for their production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And uh, with that, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Blessings.